What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. In this episode, I sat down with Sam Parr, the founder of The Hustle. Sam had joined me in a previous episode to talk about the story behind how he created The Hustle, which is this massive tech and business newsletter with millions of subscribers that does tens of millions of dollars a year in advertising revenue. We've kept up since that conversation. I spoke at his conference last December, and Sam is just a really fun and interesting guy to talk to about anything related to tech and business strategy, content, media. He just cuts straight to the heart of an issue. He's a very no-bullshit guy. He doesn't care about fluff. He doesn't care about tradition. He just wants to know what works. And so there's a lot to learn from Sam. He's the first guy to say, hey, I'm not an expert. Don't listen to me. But the reality is he is an expert. He's built some very impressive businesses and products. And I think his experience can really show just how much leverage you can have as one or two people on the internet, how many people you can reach, how much money you can make, how much of an impact you can have. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sam. So how are things going with COVID-19 and your revenue with everybody kind of staying at home and, and reading a lot, but also advertising revenue basically dropping across the board with pretty much every media company? Yeah, so we make money in three ways. Advertising, so we have this daily email that goes out to millions of people that makes money via advertising. We make money through events. And historically, that makes millions of dollars a year. And then we have we make money through paid subscription. So advertising is doing fine. It's we are going to grow it a ton. Now it's just going to it's going to grow mildly. Events disappeared. Uh, I'm going to launch. Yeah, I'm going to launch some courses and stuff like that to supplement. But gone. No fixed cost for that. So like we hadn't booked anything. Right. So it's missed revenue, but we, we didn't miss money. We didn't hire the people who we wanted to hire to do it, but so they got screwed. But besides that, our company, we lost money or we lost out on potential money, but we didn't lose. We didn't actually lose money. My friend, Jason Lemkin, you, you know, Jason probably. Yeah. I don't know this for a fact. He, I bet he lost $10 million because he, his event was going to happen in uh, March. So uh, we did not. That, so we're good. And then trends, our paid subscription, just booming. It's good to hear. I mean, I think the timing is perfect for your events because the last HustleCon was, I think, in December. I spoke at HustleCon in December. And so you had, like like you said, a lot of leeway, yeah. basically, a lot of runway where you didn't have to hire anyone. You weren't sort of ramping up. But there are so many events that are going to happen in March and April. Like, I think I'm supposed to be in Minnesota, like MicroConf, like this weekend or next or something. But that got delayed. Uh, so, yeah, I think you, you dodged a bullet with that one. Yeah, not good for those guys. But yeah. I dodged a bullet. So give me an overview of the hustle nowadays. You've got, like you said, these three different ways that you make money. You've got trends, you've got your newsletter, you've got your events. You've also got a podcast that you're, you're funding in, oh, in some yeah. way. Yeah, well, you know, that that's just me doing it. It's just like, yeah, that's me doing it. So the costs aren't really big. The update basically is like, I think we're going to build just a huge subscription business. And I don't remember what month you and I talked last but I have a, almost a year now of having a subscription business for The Hustle. It's going to be so fucking big. It's going to be a big thing, I think. Uh, last time we talked, I was asking you, what, what were your goals? And your goals were you want to build a business worth hundreds of millions of dollars, a media empire. Is it still the same? 
Yeah. No, well, I said I want to do that by 2025. Right. So these are like your long uh, goals. Yeah. No, like it's awesome. I've learned so much about subscription businesses. I am definitely not an expert, but I think I've learned why a lot of people are bad at it. Mm-hmm. And I also learned that a lot of people, a lot of media companies, their goals are just like bullshit. Their goals are so little and they're so bad at a bunch of stuff and it can work out way better than people think. Do you think being kind of a tech business in addition to a media business, like you're not a very traditional media business, you're a, l- right. a little bit more modern. Do you think that's giving you the insights you've needed to sort of figure out what others yes. can't? It's a tripod. There's, it's, it has three legs. So A, I know how to do content. So if it were just me in my house, I could just write bl- blogs that could reach millions of people. I don't know if it's a talent or if it's a skill set, but I have that ability. So I have that. So that's like media. But I don't, I'm not like a media insider. Like I don't know a ton of stuff. The second thing is like this tech product focus. But I'm not a developer and I've never had a tech company. So like I know it and I know like we, I run in that circle, but I know it. But then the third thing is internet marketing. I know how to do sales really well. And so like if you add all three of those, it kind of has created something really cool. Let's get through those. The first one is just writing and media. You said that without a company behind you, without people behind you, that you know how to reach millions of people through writing. Well, I did it. I was the first and only employee in the first month of business. We had almost a million people come to our website. What do you know that other people putting out content don't know? I learned how to become a writer. So I like locked myself in a room for a year or six months and I just like learned. I taught myself the skills. I think that naturally I was born with an ability to have a conversation with someone, but Mm -hmm. I learned how to write. If you learned how to play guitar well, maybe like the people who are really good, they were born pretty good. But uh, most people, they just like sat down and they played Jingle Bells and then they played Happy Birthday and then they played Green Day and then they played this and that. Like you progress and you improve, right? You learn the basics and then, and so I did that. And so I learned it. That whole process is invisible to the listeners and the readers. They just see like the good writing and the good musicians and they're like, oh, people are born with this, but they don't see the people practicing and doing what you did to learn how to write. Yeah, I mean, I've been blogging since 2010, 10 years now. So I've been doing that. And then before that, I was always selling stuff online, like eBay. So I learned how to write pages and stuff like that. So yeah, I just learned. So that's how I I got good at it was I learned. I think being a writer is useful for pretty much any founder, though. Like on Indie Hackers, we've got this community forum. You have all these people coming on and asking questions and trying to get advice and feedback and trying to share what they're up to. And it's funny to see so many founders and see like the giant chasm between like the best writers and the worst writers and the best writers can get hundreds of people to answer their questions and help them out being being a good copywriter just being an okay copywriter is the number one skill that you can ever have if you want to make money why do you say that hands down without a doubt okay so let me talk to you through this what does copywriting mean copywriting means a lot of people think it means like just writing uh like cute stuff that makes people laugh that's not what copywriting means copywriting means understanding human behavior and understanding people's wants and needs and manipulating that into getting them to buy stuff. Whether that's you're buying them, you're getting them to buy a product or you're getting them to donate money or you're getting them to do anything. And the reason why, and and in terms of copywriting, oftentimes that comes in the form of the written word. But the reason why copywriting is important is you can use it to meet a girlfriend. You can use it to convince an employee to join your company. You can use it to convince loads of people on social media to get behind your movement. You can use it to sell stuff. You can use it to get an investor. You, you, dude, I, you convince people every day. So if you understand what motivates people and then you understand how to communicate it using words, it's like I'm going to a gunfight with like a magic sword that like shoots laser beams. It's like it's unfair. It's like a, just an unfair advantage. 
Yeah. I mean, writing's everywhere. It's in your, your tender profile. It's in your emails. It's in your job descriptions. You text people all day. You email people. You message people on Facebook. Like, all day I do it. So give us some tips, some copywriting tips for people who are complete novices to this, who haven't studied copywriting like you have, and who don't know sort of the basics of you know, writing how they normally write, and writing how to convince people to buy things and do the things that they like them to do. So if you're a complete noob, go and read... Um, Advertising Secrets of the Written Word by Joe Sugarman. And if you really just want to be very lazy, just remember ADA, Attention, Interest, Desire, Action. That's pretty much the perfect formula. Uh, it's a pretty basic formula. And once you master it, you can do more complicated stuff. But ADA is like typically the way that you lay out any type of good sales argument or sales pitch. Attention, you grab their attention. Interest, you tell them facts to get them interested. Desire, you tell them stories to make them desire by showing them features and benefits. And then action, you specifically lay out which actions to take. And if you use the ADA formula, that's probably the easiest way to sell stuff. And that's for literally everything. It doesn't matter if you're making a website. Matter, it matter. That's the formula for persuasion. And that's been around since like the 20s or the 30s, I think. I was reading something Probably about this. Probably before that, yeah. It's like the dawn of the advertising industry that like kind of figured this out. But yeah, I'm sure people actually knew this well before that and maybe hadn't put in those exact words, use that exact acronym. Right. If you want to go hit on a girl, like what do they, what's, what do we always say? Like when we're young, we talk about pickup lines, right? That's ADA. That's attention. There's your attention. And then interest, you talk to them and ask like where people are from. And then desire, you make them want you by like showing off a little bit in action. You like ask them for the phone number. I mean, this is like Ada. Like. <laughs> so you got this tripod. The first part of it is copywriting. Uh, the second part of it is, I think you said, well, not copywriting. Copywriting is different than writing. Writing. I don't. I can't write like a fiction book, but I can. I can write long form blog posts as well. And I would say that I'm a pretty good copywriter, and I'm a pretty good like blogger. But I am. I don't think I'm world class at either. Mm. The third part, I think, was tech. No. Uh, so like blogging and media. Like I understand media and how to get traffic. And then uh, yeah, like marketing. Te- yeah, like tech and product. I understand that stuff a little bit. Uh, uh, most media companies are based in New York, and for some reason, they do a horrible job of like understanding customers and understanding mm-hmm. like you are creating widgets for a group of people, and they have to desire it and want it. Whereas a lot of like media companies in New York, they look at it like just Google Analytics, and like these are just numbers on a board, and we have to make them go up. And there's a lot of ways that you can get those numbers to go up in the short term that actually hurt you a big time in the long run. I think that Silicon Valley has a lot of soft people who are not good at stuff, and they put way too much emphasis on user experience, and it's got to be perfect. And sometimes that may, means that they're not aggressive enough about uh, mm-hmm. certain things. That said, I do think that if you take a little bit of that, like it's all about the customer making them um, happy and pleasing them and all that stuff, it's great. So let's put this in context. Your subscription business is called Trends. You launched this, I think, around the last time you were on the podcast, which I can't remember, maybe a year ago you were on the show. And Trends is, is great. I've been subscribed to it for a while cool, now. Cool, right? It's great. It's super cool. It's really high-quality writing. I love the newsletter. I haven't joined the Facebook group yet, but I just uh, applied to join like 10 minutes ago. Oh, Tell cool. us about yeah. Trends. Yeah. Tell us about how it works. Do you know, are, you're friends with Steph Smith, right? Yep. So Steph we, Yeah, I, I thought you did. She's a... Uh, She's everywhere. So she was one of our main writers, and uh, Trends is, it's like a weird thing. It's like, when I first, so I was the first writer for it. So the way that I have typically launched stuff is I do all the work, and then I do like an okay job at it, but I'm pretty good at like getting the first set of customers, and then I'll hire people who are way better than me, and they eventually um, run it. And that's what Steph does. And so, here, I just approved you, so you can kind of poke around. Um, And so... 
I uh, the original idea was I'm going to do all these cool case studies on companies and explain how they work, and that was interesting to me. And uh, that's what we did. And so at this point, I mean, Trends is going to be an eight-figure subscription business by the end of the year. Trends is it's it's a it's a content research it's like a research content product, but it also has a community with thousands and thousands of interesting people. And it's pretty nuts to build a, an eight-figure business as fast as you built it. And I think a lot has to do with the order in which you did things. You started the Hustle, which is this massive newsletter and media company, before you built a subscription business. And I see most founders doing things the other way around. They start a subscription business, and then they try to figure out what their marketing is going to be, how they reach people. How important do you think it was to do things in the order that you did them in? I wish I would have started the subscription business earlier. I The reason I started it this way was, A, I was copying people who had done this before successfully. There's a few people who I was just ripping off their strategy. So I definitely don't want to take credit for that. But it was quite important. I mean, look, when you have a loyal audience, it's like our audience is smaller, but similar to like the Kendall Jenner girl. Like she could launch anything. She what's the, who's the girl with the the lipstick thing on uh, Kylie Jenner. Yeah. The, the the billionaire. Yeah. 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 So like she could sell anything and, it will it'll be successful. And it's definitely that kind of strategy where we launch stuff and it just works because for trends, we don't spend that much money on marketing. And so our team's really small. Who works on it? It's only two people. It's a subscription business and it'll make, you know, millions of dollars a month, I think, by the end of the year. So it's like That's insane. Pretty awesome. And that would have been really hard to do without the hustle. I mean, the day we launched, we got like four thousand subscribers at three hundred dollars a year. Or Maybe I forget the exact number, but it was good. Let's talk about how Trends works as a subscription business. You mentioned the media companies based in New York. They kind of take a, a short-term approach. They're not really good at growing their audience or, or growing their subscription revenue because they make these like short-term decisions. What are some of the longer-term decisions that you're making with Trends that are helping you grow the subscription business and the substantial monster that it has become in such a short time? So basically, what I, the way that I tend to do things is it's like 50% science, 50% art. So I research a ton and I follow the data. And then also I just make stuff up that feels right. Before I launched it, I went and talked to a lot of people. So the people at The Athletic, uh, the people at, which is The Athletic is like a, a $500 million valued subscription content company. Motley Fool, which is quite big. And then loads of others. Uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I talked to everyone. And what I learned was that Pricing was important. I think you can actually charge a lot more money than you think for certain subscriptions. And so I, we charge $300 a year, and I, that's way too low. We're actually going to increase it by a fair bit in the next uh, three or two months, whenever the one-year anniversary of launching is in June. And so that's important. Another thing is we did annual billing only. And what annual billing only has allowed us to do is our cash flow is really good. Um, and that was important. A lot of startups, not only do they charge like $5 a month for the product, which yeah. for most people is a massive mistake. Not everyone, but most people. But also what they do is they allow you to do like a freemium thing. Like right. you try it for free. Nope, that's wrong too. I think for most people, that is wrong. You want to charge up front. And so that's what we did. We made sure to charge up front. Super smart. The, and the fourth thing that we did was we only did, uh, did I say annual billing? Yeah, only bill, only annual billing, massive and, cash flows. Right oh, up front. And, and, and then the other thing was um, 
sales pages. Most people fucking suck at sales pages. They are so bad at it. And we worked really hard to have like really good long form sales pages, which a lot of Silicon Valley people think that that it's stupid and doesn't work. And they are totally wrong. It does. For most people, it works way better than not. And so we had like a hard paywall as opposed to uh, like a website where you can see all the articles and things like right. that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's almost a cultural aesthetic thing in Silicon Valley to be kind of against these long form sales pages. It's not so a trendy. Stupid. It's not a trendy thing here. But you know, like, like if you go to like Amazon and you go and now long form doesn't always necessarily mean you have a lot of text. Long form typically means you give the person a lot of information before they make the purchase. And right. so that lot of information could be in the form of photos or it could be in the form of a video. But if you go to Amazon.com and you look at the Kindle, which or whatever Amazon's trying to pimp out, like the Echo, I have an Echo right here. They're trying to make the Echo big that's probably where the best sales pages are. And if you go to the Echo, I'll go right now. I bet you there's 2,000 words describing what an Echo is on Amazon.com. So I don't know why people are so against long-form sales pages, but they work. Like, oh my gosh, show, look, go, go look at the Echo right now. I'm checking it out right now. The Amazon Echo Dot, third generation. Like, Yeah, it's huge. There's a ton. And they also have 61,000 reviews, and you could go and read all of them. That's like so much copy. And this is only a $30 product. And typically, the more expensive the price, or the more expensive the product, the longer the sales page needs to be. And so anyway, I just think that Silicon Valley sucks at this. I don't know why. I mean, it's um, this concept of education-based selling, where you're trying to inform your customers and make sure that they understand more about the landscape and what you're offering, and then that they honestly end up trusting you more. Especially yeah. if you're selling information or a subscription to something like Trends, where essentially you're giving people information. And if you prove to them that you can give them really good information, and they also understand more about why your subscription is great or why your Amazon product is great, then they're much more likely to buy. But again, I just don't think it's trendy. I think it's trendier it's to trendy. copy what you see you know, the hottest startup in your neighborhood doing and just make a website that looks like theirs. Yeah, and... Oftentimes, even if they do succeed, it's like they succeed despite themselves. Like there's so many better ways to do it. Like let's actually look up something interesting. So like Mira. Have you heard of this thing called Mira or is it called Miro? I haven't heard of it. This like whiteboard software? Miro. It's pretty cool. I signed up to it for it today. It's pretty neat. Let's see what their sales pages is. I think a lot of these companies do a pretty good job. They have like longish sales pages. But like for most people, like if you go to Product Hunt and look at what the top products are, they use like very web 2.0, flat design, all this stuff. And it's uh, it's more about fitting in than it is about what's effective. It's more about like, you know, what are other people on Product Hunt doing? Let me make sure my website looks the same. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I, don't, think that they, I don't think that people think about this the, the right way. So you went to all these different media companies. You went to The Athletic and Motley Fool and The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. What did you learn by talking to them, and how did that help you launch trends? Yeah, you want to hear some interesting stories. Um, have you heard of this company? Did I tell you about Agora? I told you about Agora, right? No. Okay, so Agora is one of the most interesting companies I've ever heard of in my life. I'll give you background. It started in the 1970s. The guy who started it, his name was Bill Bonner. I may not be describing this accurately, but for most people, he's like pretty hardcore libertarian. And arguably, the mainstream people might think that he's kind of like kooky and like a conspiracy theorist. But he started this like newsletter 
which I don't even remember at the time what it was called, but he basically just grew it over many, many years. And at this point, Agora is a collection of roughly 50 different brands and 50, 50 different newsletters. They do about $1.2, $1.5 billion a year in sales. And it's 100% privately owned. It might be one of the most profitable, like top 100 most profitable privately owned companies in America. And they get sued a lot because they do a lot of unethical stuff. Like they promote newsletters on how to cure cancer or how to like cure diabetes. So it's and it's a lot of fear mongering. And do you remember, do you know who James Altucher is? Yeah. Do you know his newsletter, the Bitcoin thing? I've seen his uh, his Bitcoin ads that are a little controversial. Uh, Agora, space Agora owns that. Okay. Yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. not the most ethical. It's not the most honest. No, um, it's not. But you can all, you can learn from anyone. And anyway, I learned a lot from those guys. I've I went and talked to them. I mean, they 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 make so much money and they do it in a lot of unethical ways. But there's still stuff that can be learned. What's the ethical stuff that they do that you can learn from? I think James Altucher's product is mostly legit. Um, I think his stuff's legit. His marketing is a little hardcore though. They have the, they own this brand called Money. Oh, what's it called? Map Money Press, and it's all about like interesting stocks and it analyzes different stocks. I think it's legitimate. Bill Bonner, the guy who owns the company, he's definitely a little kooky, but he's got some really cool newsletters that I pay money for, and I find them to be very fascinating and fun. You have this, um, um, I, I think it's like a common pattern in everything you do where you're not trying to innovate from the ground up from first principles, what's going to work. Rather, you're looking at out of all the thousands of businesses and millions of people out there, what's already working for people, and you just go talk to those people. And yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I do that. I've noticed this pattern. And you mentioned it earlier too. Like, okay, maybe this isn't like the most innovative thing, but you've you're gonna look at what other people have done. And I think that's by far the smartest way to go. Even with ND hackers, I didn't like come up with the idea for ND hackers in a vacuum. I looked at what was working for Pure Levels as business, Nomad List and a few other businesses and just sort of copied the fundamentals of what's what's going on with them. But that's how I but the, I think that is innovative because like what has ever been made that is truly original? I mean, like not even Tesla's original. It's just an electric car that's done better and, and differently and is cool, right? Like, it's not like he was the first electric car. To me, business is kind of like writing songs where, like, there's a handful of, like, chord structures that just work. And, like, most pop songs are around 80 to 100 beats per minute. And uh, they, like, have a chorus, a bridge. And, a, like, there's just best practices. And within those best practices, I can make my art. And that's kind of how I view it. How do those conversations go? Do you just email somebody at the New York Times and say, hey, I'd like to pick your brain about how your business works? I never use that word, pick your brain, but that's my pet peeve. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I cold email people like crazy. I tell them who I am. I'm lucky because at this point, some people know who we are. I get in their face and I'm very confrontational or I'll say like, hey, I'm going to build this thing. Tell me how you do it. And I just ask questions. I'll be like, how much revenue you guys do? What do you pay? And I also reveal information about my company to them and they can learn from me sometimes. And then also like I just kind of brute force my way to getting the answer. It makes so much sense because I think people like talking about what they do. If somebody emails me and asks me a specific question about how I do something that I do, especially if I if I find it like impressive or I'm proud that I did something, I'm pretty likely to just explain it. Yeah. So typically what I do is I flatter them because it's not bullshit. I'm genuinely interested and I think it's awesome what they did. So I would do it with you. I would say how many people listen to the Indie Hackers podcast? And uh, I don't know, would you tell me? Yeah, I would tell you, of course. How many people listen per episode? 35,000 downloads. Wow, that's a lot. How many uh, episodes do you do a week? One a week, although I'm pretty inconsistent. I've had periods where I do two a week. I've had periods where I, I miss two or three weeks in a row. Does it make profit? 
nope, we don't charge for anything. Stripe bought the company. We immediately shut off all of our advertising. We make zero dollars in indie hackers. How or why did they buy it? Stripe's mission is to increase the GDP of the internet. And I think the most succinct way to say it is that indie hackers inspires people to start companies. And those people go on to become Stripe customers. And some of them uh, make Stripe a lot of money and make a lot of money for themselves. So the incentives are really aligned to basically help companies do well and inspire people to start companies. How many people work on the site? My brother and I full-time, Rosie Sherry as our community manager. So wait, is Rosie Sherry one person? Yeah, she's one person. So only three, she's an incredible only three people? Yeah, it's only three of us. Pretty- We've had some contractors. Like we have a, a, a guy who edits my podcast. We have some people How much we work do you with pay for... someone to edit your podcast? Let's see. I don't, I don't actually know. I think like a hundred fifty bucks an episode. That's a steal. So he's great. So anyway, my point is, is that I'll just answer all these questions. You just, for you. You just, I'll just tell you what you need to know. And and it comes from a genuine place of like I think what you you do is so impressive. And also, if I just kind of directly ask you what I want to know. And I'm not doing it, I'm being aggressive about how I'm asking, but I don't think I'm making you uncomfortable. And if at any point you said, I don't want to answer, I would be like, oh, it's, it's okay. Like, you know what I mean? Right. So anyway, I'm just, I think that if you just are a man on a mission or a woman on a mission, you can definitely just get it done. Before we started Trends, you had The Hustle, obviously. The Hustle, for those who haven't listened to our previous conversation, is an absolutely massive newsletter. I mean, you've got millions of subscribers. You're doing, I think, eight figures in ad revenue with The Hustle. It's a great base to launch a different product on. It's a great base to launch trends on. You even launched a podcast. How's your podcast doing? How many downloads are you getting? And do you think that having The Hustle sort of kickstarted the growth of your podcast as well? I think we do a shit job of promoting it. We're only 50% the size of you. So in terms of downloads per episode, it's probably... It's- uh, what is there? See, I'm like pretty ignorant when it comes to podcasts. Is there a difference between listens per episode and downloads per episode? I think all these stats differ depending on what podcast player you're looking at or who your podcast host is. But internally, I separate listens and downloads, and I consider a listen to be somebody who downloaded the episode and then listened to at least half of it. We're like in the range of 50, uh, 15 to 20,000 listens per episode, which I think is only okay. I think it's like mm-hmm. on the top, it's in the top, uh, I don't know. What would that be? Like the top 40, maybe? Yeah, for a business podcast especially, it's like top 1%, I would say, sure. of podcasts. But it's on the bottom half of the 1%. Right. And so it's, it goes okay. Podcast growth is hard. It's tough. It's, it's so like hard. very driven by word of mouth. People recommend episodes to each other. I've interviewed people who have big audiences and their episodes get okay downloads. I've interviewed people we had just a great conversation and it really flowed. And a ton of people recommend it to their friends every day. And those episodes have gotten 100,000 downloads. Yeah, it's crazy. So I, uh, I started doing it in earnest in December. And it's been it's fun. Like You kind of get like famous. It's, isn't it weird? Like People like act like they know you and stuff. People recognize your voice because they're literally listening to you in their ear, have conversations for hours and hours and hours. But it's cool because they don't recognize you on the street. So you're like fake famous. No one will really bother you. But when they hear you talk, they're like, you're that guy. It's awesome. And how many followers do you have on, on I'm looking you up, on um, Twitter? I don't know, probably like 23,000. Oh, I'm not all- very active on Twitter. You got That's where it's at right now. But like, so it's cool because like, you, yeah, 23, 20, almost 24,000. If you just tweet something like, I need help with like this, uh, I need to find a better bank. Like, it's my favorite use case for Twitter. Advice Twitter, basically. Something that I, I don't want to Google because I think my followers will have a better answer, a better recommendation. What should I do in this city? Or like you said, you know, I need a bank. What do you recommend? Or what's the latest uh, tool for it's XYZ? Awesome. You just get responses in like five minutes instantaneously if you have enough followers. It's great. I ask people like which coffee I should order 
and I got like I think a hundred replies. Anyway, I don't know how what we were talking. Oh, podcasting. Our podcast is pretty good. It, it can be better. It's. I love it. I think it's extremely well made. Thank you. I haven't talked to anyone who sort of cracked the nut on podcast growth. Although I have my own theories that a lot of it is similar to what helps newsletters grow. For example, being newsier and focused more on like trending topics rather than being purely educational, I think can help with retention and people not necessarily dropping it. But yeah, I mean, I I would love to sit down and like talk to you for an hour about podcast growth and what you guys are doing and talk to other well, podcasters. I don't know shit, dude. You're the one. Like, I don't do anything. <laughs> I do nothing. We do nothing for it. I just hired an intern to help me grow it, but we do nothing for it. You know who you should talk to? You should talk to um, Sonal, if you want to, from A16Z. She runs kind of their media empire and their podcast, and they do a ton of downloads, and she's very thoughtful. And that's like her entire job. I'm doing the podcast and like 50 other things. You're doing 50 other things. Uh, but she's a great person to talk to. I would love to. So you've got trends, you've got your podcast, you've got the hustle. This is all basically one giant media empire. If I it's look not at what giant, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's giant for most people who are listening who are basically trying to start their own tiny companies. And I think it's popular nowadays, more so than it was in, in the past, for people to kind of start these small media companies by themselves. Yeah, man, if people can build a much bigger media company with one or two people than they probably think. Well, it's crazy. I mean, the written word is extremely scalable. Yeah, look, like, I'm telling you this because I know people who do it and I've done it. You can make $10 million a year. You could make $50 million a year. I'm not exaggerating. $50 million a year with four people on an email list. Or sorry, I mean, four I writers. Ben Thompson from Shatekery is one of the, the great examples. I don't know exactly how many subscribers he has, but I've heard it's in the many tens of thousands. And they're each paying $100 a year. And he's not and he's even writing charging... four blog posts. He's not charging enough at all. I know, I have a friend, Kevin Van Trump is his name. He, uh, no relation to the other Trump, he's just share Kevin Van Trump. He has this thing called the Van Trump Report. I met this guy at a conference. He's like six foot two and like 350 pounds. He's like this massive guy. And he uh, has a paid newsletter on ag tech, agriculture technology, roadmap to better decision making for investors and ag tech professionals. He makes about $30 million a year off this newsletter. And it's, it is just him. That's unbelievable. What would you say to somebody who is thinking about writing a newsletter right now and they're trying to get started, how might you start a brand new newsletter company today if you had nothing? I would pick a very, very, very small but fast-growing niche. I would purposely know who I am trying to attract and, more importantly, who I am not going to try to attract. Uh, The whole point of this is you have to go niche. So I would do that for sure. I would not sign up for Substack. I don't think they do a good job. Um, I think that they can do great, but I currently I don't think they do do great at the moment. What would I do? I would then um, charge more money than I think I should. I would charge like five hundred to a thousand dollars a year, and then I would make sure that the information that I provide was very utilitarian. So it would need to be it, the way that I would say is I'm like it has to be like a vegetable smothered in peanut butter in that it can be entertaining and interesting but at its core it's got to be utility it's got to help you get something done better um, I would also try to make sure that I tailored it towards people who are going to make money using the information that I provide them right um, this way it's a very easy justification uh, the, the cost um, what else I would uh, charge like $500 a year or something like that. And then I would like just spend a fair bit of money on advertising to make it grow. And then I would um, occasionally have blog posts, which I would work very hard to make go viral. And I would probably, instead of posting on my own blog, I would I would post on my blog and I would try to make it go popular on Hacker News or Reddit or wherever the people are or your site, wherever the people are. 
or I would try to um, guest post for other people. I love that you said make sure that you know that this is vegetable, it's utilitarian, in combination with making sure that people can actually use what you're writing to make money. Essentially, you want to sell to customers who have money and you want to help them make more money, which then allows them to justify paying this $500 a year, $1,000 a year, which they're not going to pay for just writing something that's purely for entertainment. And I think it's a great time for that too. I was just reading a report from SimilarWeb that um, for the first time in a while, business and finance coverage is getting more clicks and reads than any other category, even oh, in politics. Amazing. And it's an election year. Donald Trump is president. And people are still reading more about business and finance than they're reading about politics. And so it's like kind of a golden area if you want to write about stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. To help people grow their businesses. Like you said, this guy's got his ag tech newsletter. The hustle is all about business and tech. Trends is specifically about business and tech. Who are you not targeting with trends? You said you need to exclude people. You need to be for a specific niche. Who is trends not for? And who is it for? We're going to start charging more money. And we purposely, like, if you are like a young college student or you're just getting started in your career, we're probably not the place to, we're not the place for you. We have a lot of people in Europe or Asia who say, can you guys do some more coverage in different countries? And we're not for that. We're going to, we have to stick to what we know. We don't know Asia. We don't know Europe. A lot of big corporations have offered to pay us thousands of dollars a year in order to do custom coverage for them. We will be eventually. Um, so those are who we're not for. It's a tough decision to make to exclude people, but also you have to do it to be focused. And you know, reading trends and paying for trends, like I'm kind of squarely in what you're saying. Like I'm not in Asia. I'm in the United States. I'm not a fledgling college student. I'm sort of mature. Uh, it's easy for me to pay for it. For example, I didn't think twice. I put it on my Stripe. You know, sort of company card. Yeah, that's why I pay for trends. That's, and that's what we do. I mean, we know that that's how it's going to work. And so it's like an easy justification. Yeah. And I think a lot of people charge way too little for what they're doing because they don't, number one, target the right customers. And they just don't understand that if you target the right customers, that they just have a lot of income to spend on stuff like this. If I can read your business newsletter and I have like literally thousands of dollars a month as my budget, it's a no brainer for me to spend three or $400 on something. And I don't even blink where yeah. people charging five or $10 a month for these SaaS products that they're building for years. They're stupid. They don't so understand. much work into it. And I own a small SaaS company that the product costs $5 a month. And that's what the price is. And that's what the <laughs> I pr- built one. Yeah. And the pricing is that. And I'm like, oh my God, this thing is never going to grow. Well, you need like tens of thousands of paying subscribers to make any money. And even then, you're only making like a small amount of money. Whereas if you have like a thousand people paying you 500 bucks a month, like that's. Ridiculous. It's way better and it's way less of a headache. You have better customers who probably don't complain as much and you're not nickel and diming. You're not getting nickel and dimed. And also, uh, the way it works, I think, is the person who could spend the most money to acquire a customer will win. Right. And you, which you can only do if you charge a lot per customer. Or you're going to lose a ton of money and you're like, well, somehow, somehow people are going to stay with this product for 10 years and I'll make my profit in year seven, eight, nine. And I'm like, oh, all right. Well, I mean, maybe that, that definitely could work, I guess, but it's like scary. So, how are you spending money to acquire customers for trends? We aren't. I mean, we spend, uh, we drive people to a trial um, and we spend, uh, like 50 grand a month at this point. Not a lot. Uh, the way that we get most of our subscribers is through the hustle. Um, There's a, a great tweet the other day from Dave Gerhardt who said, don't build a marketing team, build a media company for your niche. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. You built that. a media company. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> he, what you he did. He wants to launch a podcast under our name. And I, I forgot to reply to him. Is, that, is he legit? I don't know very much about him. In fact, I, I couldn't have told you his name before I saw that tweet. But he seems to have a following. I thought it was a is an interesting tidbit. So 
You have to do some of your uh, Sampar research I know, I, to, I, to figure it out. I need to. He seems like a good guy, but I don't know him. Now, yeah, and that's another thing I wouldn't do, which a lot of people do. They're so stupid. I hate when people do this, where typically it's journalists or engineers who do this, or Silicon Valley people, and they're like, it's a $5 donation, and for or it's $1 a month. I'm like, first of all, don't even fucking charge if you're gonna if it's a dollar a month, just give it away, dude. Like you're stupid. Charge way more money. And second, don't call it a donation. If you are providing me value, I will pay you for this thing. I don't go to a restaurant and you give me a steak and you say, Oh, you know, just pay whatever. Or like uh, it's like, no, I gave you value, you give me value back. Like I'll give you more yeah. value than you're gonna give me back in terms of money. At least I, my goal is to make your experience far greater than this twenty dollar steak, but give me twenty dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the other thing about this is when you charge money for what you're building, you get the right kinds of customers because if people are paying you money, then they must think what you're doing is really valuable. It must be making them money or saving them money or providing them with a really great experience if they're handing you, handing you money. Whereas if you're making something free, it might be valuable to people, but like not in a way that actually is worth them coughing over any yeah, money to you. And so if you have all these free users, they're going to be requesting all sorts of stuff that you probably shouldn't build because it's just going to be stuff that like a freezer would expect. Whereas if you have paid users, they're going to be requesting things that actually provide monetary value to them. And that's a much better train to be on. Like That's the kind of river you want to be flowing down because it'll lead you to building a more valuable business over time. I agree. And I think that donations definitely work in some cases. Not only do they work in some cases, like I think a lot of streamers make a lot of money through donations, and that's great. Good for them. I also think that some products should be nonprofits or should be donation-driven. Like, totally. Uh, I'm, I'm totally acceptable with that. But if you're trying to make a money-making enterprise, I just don't understand why you would do that in most cases. Well, people doing that don't last for very long. I mean, either they stop doing that, or their business just dies. Or they're incredibly frustrated for like three or five years working on this thing that doesn't make any money. But anyway, you're paying for some of your subscribers for trends. But a lot of them are also coming from The Hustle, your main newsletter. The vast majority and of them, like 90%. The vast majority is just word of mouth from The Hustle. You've got your marketing machine. It's kind of spurred up. What's the best way if you have a really well-oiled marketing machine, if you have something that people are reading regularly, to convert them to a subscription product? Do you send them to these long-form sales pages that you have? Yeah. So when we launched, I collected 50 or I think I had 80 grand in pre-sales. And what I did was, I wonder if I could find it. Uh, I created a Gumroad page and it just said like, my name's Sam Part, The Hustle. I'm going to launch this thing one day, like in the next handful of months. And I'm going to charge maybe 500. I, I said what the price is, but I didn't know at the time. I just guessed. I was like, I'm going to charge around this much money. And if you want early access, you can have it now for a lifetime, but you pay a hundred bucks. And I put this on our thank you page. So the page, the pay, oh, here it is. I found it. The page that uh, you see after you sign up for the hustle, which got a lot, right. which got a lot of people to see it. And anyway, uh, thousands of people would buy it. And so I eventually said, all right, this has legs. And then I talked to all the people who purchased it. Like I did customer discovery, just normal stuff. I kind of honed it on the idea. And so that's what I would do if you had a, oh, another thing I did was I emailed only, I emailed it to 500 people and I explained that story of like, I'm thinking right. about launching this right now. It's just me. I'm doing this. If you're unhappy, I'll give you a refund. But just so you know, I'm going to charge like this much money for it a year and you can get lifetime access for X. And then people pay, gave me money. I sent them sample reports. Uh, they liked them. And then I called each person and I just did normal, just hand-to-hand combat learning. I think if you build an organization around writing, which obviously any media organization is going to be built around, there's a sense in which it feels kind of like an endless treadmill. I mean, you have to really like writing. Because <laughs> essentially, sure. it, if you don't if like you it, write you're, something, you're not going to work here. 
Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, you you can't work for you. You can't do it if you don't like writing because even as the founder, you're sort of getting these projects off the ground. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how great your writing is. If you stop sending trends next week, like you're going to lose your subscription. You're going to lose all your business. It's very different than a SaaS business. It's hard. Uh, what are your tips for hiring good writers? What are your tips for building an organization around writing that can sort of run on that treadmill successfully? Here, by the way, check this out. Go to your chat. Look, I sent it to you. You can kind of, yeah, you can see this for the writers. I discovered it. Um, Scumred link. Yeah, hustle trends. I collected fifty grand that way. So this is just a simple Gumroad landing page where you've got like, I don't know, maybe like 15, 16 paragraphs introducing the hustle trends and talking about what it's going to be about. And then at the end, you say that you're planning to charge 30 bucks a month for this. But if people pay for it now, they can get it for a one-time lifetime access fee of $30. And I think you said you made something like forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. Something this. like that. It, it was, yeah. I, 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 yeah, it was like 50 grand. Maybe it was 30 grand. It was tens of thousands of dollars. Crazy. And it's super simple. I mean, I could tell you're using what you talked about earlier, Ada, and writing this. I'll put a link to this in the show notes so people can read through it. What about the people who work, who work for you? Like, tell me about the writers. You told me about Steph Smith, who I know. How do you hire good writers? How do you identify good writers? How do you pay good writers? They're I was like actually going to, yeah, I was going to write a big Twitter thread on this. So, but I'll explain a little bit. So, to write a good writer or to hire writers, um, I've hired a lot of bad ones. Uh, I've hired a lot of great ones. The first prereq is you have to like it. You have to enjoy doing it. It is very hard. And a lot of our writers, they write for us all day and then they have personal blogs and they write at home. So I had, I have one guy and um, I was talking to him. He works for us now on Zoom and he put a screen down and there was like a big piece of paper like right here. I was like, what's that? He goes, oh, it's this manuscript I wrote. And it was like, 200,000 words like I was like what the fuck so edge thick yeah and so you he's like I wrote this like screenplay or something and so you have to like it step one you have to like it and then two you have to be talented and talent is broken into two different things the first thing is can you literally get the words into my brain and to do that you don't have to have good grammar but you have to know how to tell a story and then the second part of talent is you have to have insight and talent and so the way that I describe this is First of all, you have the grammar part. It doesn't have to be good, but you have to be able to tell a story. And the way that I find out people can uh, tell me a story is I call at, I call it asking the bottom asking about the bottom fourth of the resume. So the bottom fourth of the resume is the bottom part. It says what clubs they were part of, what they, where they went to college, what they studied, what they like to do in their free time. And so I'll say like I'll say, hey, where'd you? Uh, I'll ask you right now. Where'd you go to college? I went to college at MIT, which I'd always wanted to get into since I was a kid. And I ended up getting a degree in computer science. What was, because wait, computer science? What was your favorite course? My favorite course was uh, I think it was six one seventy. And MIT, all the courses have numbers, and I don't know why they do it this way. It's basically just to make everything what was it about? super esoteric. But we ended up learning how to build a chess game from scratch. Why is that so the entire semester? It's interesting because it's a game, man. And games are super addictive. And it's one thing to sit down and read a bunch of books about theory and essentially programming knowledge, not really apply it. But it's another to have a challenge that you get on day one. And you know what you're building toward the entire semester. And if at the end of it all, your chess AI sucks, then it's going to lose against everybody else's chess AI. And if it's good, it's going to win a lot. I don't remember who the teacher was because quite frankly, I rarely went to class in college. I did everything from my dorm room. So now if I wanted to, I would keep asking. I'd be like, what you went from the dorm? Okay. And so if you can... I'm asking because I care and I'm interested. Right. And if you can continue getting me interested, 
then I, I know that you're probably pretty good at a story. But shockingly, a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, I didn't really have a lot of favorite classes. I'd be like, dude, if you spent four years and tens of thousands of dollars at a fucking university, you can't tell me you had a favorite class or favorite moment. You're boring. And either you suck at telling a story or you're just boring. And in both cases, I don't want to be around you. So I asked about the bottom fourth of the resume. That's what I do. That's how I understand storytelling. The second thing that I like to learn about is just general knowledge. So like, can you just like, do you just like to learn about stuff? And so right. a lot of times our writers, if you talk to them about Trump, if you talk to them about Corona, but then if you talk to them about pop culture, about LeBron, they just have mm-hmm. general knowledge because they just consume a ton of information. And that just they, – that interests them a lot. And then the fourth thing or the third thing that I like to do is I call specific knowledge. And so I'll ask them about a very specific thing. So we had this guy named Brad, and he wrote about – this is more, I mean, sad, but there was a problem with rape in the army. And he had a front page expose where he talked about this poor lady who was raped and in the military and how it was a really big issue and a big problem. And I had him tell me all about what he learned about that. And he became an expert on that topic. And it just proved to me that he could learn really quickly and become an expert. And so I try to look for those three things when I'm hiring a writer. Um, It's a combination of like, in the moment, can they be interesting and show you that they're interesting and interested in things? And also, past history, have they really proven a track record of being able to dig into things and actually become expert researchers? I'm curious, if you were to hire someone who is going to write for trends, which is very specific, I mean, you're writing about tech and you're writing about the future of tech and you're writing about business specifically, like, would you prefer to have someone who's an expert on those subjects? Yeah. Or would you prefer to have someone who's like a great writer in other fields, but you think they can learn to become interested in this area? An expert. Yeah, someone who eat, breathes, and sleeps this stuff. Me and Trung, this guy we hired, Trung, we all uh, like text late at night. Like we looked at, we were screwing around masterclass and I'm like, dude, masterclass is so amazing because when you take the class, it's really, they're not really not teaching you that much stuff, but it's so inspiring. The commercials are so cool. When I'm watching this Judd Apatow thing, the story part is actually more interesting than him teaching me how to be funny. And he's like, yeah, that's probably how they get people hooked. And then they also are, they're probably willing to like acquire customers for like dirt cheap. Like this is just what we, this is how we were talking for fun. Right. Yeah. And so that it's way easier when someone's obsessed with this stuff. That's why I like working with my brother because we also have the same company. We're just on Zoom all day, especially now that we're just like stuck in our apartment. We're on Zoom for literally like just eight hours a day. And anytime either one of us sees like a product or something, we're not just talking about the product. We're just dissecting how it works, the psychology behind it. We talk a lot about news. We talk about the hustle. We talk about advertising. And I, I'm very curious about advertising in your situation too because you've got this subscription business and quite frankly, when most people think about content and making money from content, their mind goes straight towards ads. Not buying ads, but literally working with advertisers to put advertisements into their podcast, into their newsletter, into their blog, and making money that way. That's how you finance the hustle. It's the bulk of your business. Do you see well, the it future won't be being... the bulk of our business starting in June. Subscription revenue is going to pass ad revenue. How much, is that because, how much of that is because uh, of COVID-19? There's a lot of businesses shut down. Obviously, that means they're not getting even if customers. We hit our it's for- even if we hit our forecast, it would be bigger. That's nuts. Do you see that being like the, the case forever? Do you see yourself getting off of kind of the uh, advertising drip and then being no. subscription and going forward? Not off, but it's going to be a good supplemental revenue. But it's, subscription is going to be bigger. That's crazy. And it's a good place to be. I mean, quite frankly, I think it's, it's awesome. better business to, to have your customers paying you for the value you're providing. It's awesome. Advertising is this kind of weird mixed incentive thing. And Yeah, and uh, here's why it's awesome. You can say whatever you want. You only have to exactly. please your customer. Um, advertising is good because it's fast money. You can, you can drum that up fast. It's very profitable. 
but it definitely hits a ceiling and you definitely sometimes your hands get tied and so now we'll make money through advertising but what i love and you like this you're you might be different you know and you could be honest because you work for stripe but like if you have if you're new zealand and you have your own business and you can do whatever you want and no one's going to get you like it's exciting right like you can say anything yeah. you want and that's how you have to do it when you have advertisers sometimes you can't say stuff yeah, I think a lot of people don't know this about advertising, but they're not just these objective observers. The second they start paying you to put basically their ads in your content, they kind of feel like they have a seat at the table. They don't want you to talk about certain subjects. They make requests and they end up changing the nature of your products. And I think with some of the bigger media organizations like the New York Times or, you know, like traditional media organizations, they've, I mean, it happens on YouTube all the time. Yeah, YouTube we block certain had, videos because of advertising. We had this big client. It's a huge bank, one of the top, I'll say, 10 banks. And uh, well, fuck, I'll say it. It was Goldman Sachs. And they wanted to advertise with us. And we let them. And I like Goldman, actually. And so it's not disrespectful to them. I understand why they did this. But we wrote a story about fuck Jerry. And it, we thought it would be funny just to use the word fuck in every single sentence. Right. And they were like, no, pull that shit. And we were like, eh, no, we're not. No. <laughs> but we lost money on that. Uh, right. And so, like, that, I thought that was funny. I thought it was cool. And and another time, one time when Trump got elected in 2016, right when we had first started, I wrote the whole email in Trump's voice. And I thought it was funny and, like, cute. And uh, the advertisers didn't. But right. we did it anyway. But now when you have, like, a lot of employees and stuff and, and you have salesmen on quota, it's like, oh, shit. It's like... I don't care about that advertiser, to be honest. Like I, I like them and I want them to win, but I care more about my salesperson who needs this yep. commission. And so you definitely have to sacrifice some things. Yeah, you're going to be on a subscription, mostly subscription revenue basis in the future. You're not really going to have to answer to anybody. No, answer. we'll expand our advertising. I think that, uh, you know, the New York Times, I would have to look it up. I bet New York Times makes 60% of their money through subscription and 40% through advertising. So no, it's a it's, it's good and I'll do it. But I try to position everything in my life to come from a position of fuck you to where like I like will like someone and respect them and want to work with them. But at the end of the day, I can just say fuck you and walk away. And I think that's the sh- that you have to if you come from that p- perspective, you can um make your key stakeholders significantly happier. And that's what I want to do. I mean, the idea behind why most people become indie hackers, when I ask them about it, they give me all these answers about money and about creative expression, about working from wherever they want or time independence, but it all kind of boils down to freedom. People want to have control over their lives. As a founder, you're building this thing that gives you control over your life, but you also want to have control over the thing. And so if you have the ability to, as you say, say fuck you to anybody, it just basically means that they don't control you, that you're still going to be alive, you're still going to be thriving, even if you have a confrontation with one of your partners. It doesn't matter. You have the freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah, and, and look, I don't have that many confrontations. It's I know it's a, I'm trying to sound like some alpha bully or something, but I don't. I get along with like all of our people, and I'm really happy with the decisions we make. But it is really powerful to when when we negotiate with people or I, like if we have an employee who um, is being a jerk or we have a customer who's being a jerk it's always you know what leave like we don't need we don't need anything and that is actually significantly better and it makes like the people who i want to make happy it makes them much happier given the fact that everybody's kind of at home on their computers 
uh, obsessively clicking refresh on Twitter and every sort of news story. Traffic numbers are crazy high. I think Bloomberg reported the number of their new subscribers in March was up almost 200%. Andy Hackers has been growing like crazy. We had like 50% more comments uh, in our community last month and the month before. I'm sure the hustle is growing like crazy. Trends is growing like crazy. But at the same time, advertising revenue is down. We're going through this sort of adpocalypse where basically companies just aren't advertising. It sounds like you know, you've revised your estimates downward, but you're still going to grow your ad business. How are you making ads work when people just aren't buying as many ads? We have B2B advertisers. So businesses are still buying some stuff. Not a lot. I mean, not as much, but it's still growing. And look, if you have 800, 900,000 people opening your email each day, which we, we do, you can make money off of that. I mean, maybe you won't make as much and it'll be 30 or 40% less, but you definitely make money off that. I mean, you know, people are still buying whoops or people are, or what's this called? A whoop? Whatever this thing is called. Uh, people are still buying desks. People are still buying stuff. And so they're, yeah. so they're willing to buy, I mean, advertising for sure. It's just not as much stuff. Do you think if somebody's, trying to start their own media company. Earlier, you recommended you know, they charge $500 or $1,000. Would you recommend against doing an advertising-supported media business as, as a one-person indie hacker? Depends what your aspirations are. If you want to get huge and be a huge company, I think it needs to be part of the... It needs to be part. It doesn't need to be. But if you're going to go... If you want to be huge and, we want, and you want to be huge fast, you either have to get your funnel down so you can spend a ton of money on advertising to buy uh, new users... Or you have to do like content marketing and kind of it's going to be a little bit slower and you got to build a brand and that advertising helps. Um, And by the way, like I'm not against advertising inherently. I think that if you do advertising well, it's awesome. I mean, advertising is amazing because I mean, I discovered so many cool things. I just saw like uh, a new pair of Jordans that looked awesome and they sponsored this podcast. It looked so cool. And I was like, oh, wow, I just discovered something cool. Uh, When I listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast, I like I hear like that's how I discovered Wealthfront, and Wealthfront has made me a lot of money every year because of I uh, use them. So no, advertising is great when it's done well. So I would say, yeah, do advertising if that's what you're willing to do. I mean, if that's what if that fits your values, uh, which it fits mine. But just know that that ad revenue, that shit gets addicting, and oftentimes new products that you want to launch go directly against your advertising revenue goals and revenue targets, and it they conflict hard. And so you have to make sure it's uh, that you're willing to draw the line. And we've done a good job at that, but you have to make sure that you draw the line. And most companies cannot. Like a lot of media companies that are ad-supported right now, like BuzzFeed, I don't think they will ever, ever, ever be subscription-driven. And that is going to hurt them a lot. What do you think stops them from being able to launch something subscription-driven and doing what you've done with, with Trends? Fear. They are, will do all the things that we described before. Dude, if you go to Vox, they're asking for donation. Are you know, kidding me? Is that the stupidest shit you've ever seen? And they're also the VC stuff funded. I've ever seen. They raised $150 million. You can't tell me. I get so infuriated. You can't tell me that you can't build something that's worth more than $1 donation. Get the fuck out of here, you idiot. <laughs> you guys, like, you have this big-ass staff of talented people. Come up with something. Don't do this dollar bullshit. Golly! So the reason why they won't launch, launch stuff is because they ha- their journalists are are their fear they're, they're, they come from a place of fear where they're too afraid to price uh, high or they're too afraid to charge for stuff and also they 
it's really hard in the consumer's mind. The whole freemium thing is hard for a lot of people. New York Times and Wall Street Journal do it well because they're like the best. But for most people, it's really hard to do freemium. They're like, oh, why would I pay for it when I get most of it for free? So you, it's a lot right. better just to make it all or nothing. Um, and third, they're ad supported. And so uh, the the ad team and sales team will be like, oh, no, don't put that paywall up. We need more views for the advertising. Uh, and it takes a lot. It would take a long time for a company like that to change their culture. Uh, and that would be hard. So you got to get up on the right foot, basically. Yeah, and that or somehow get over the get over the fear. And a lot of writers don't want their stuff behind paywalls. Um, they want, which is weird. I'm like, you guys, you, look, you're either gonna put it, you're gonna be ad supported, and I need you to just pump shit out that gets page views, or you can do less stuff, and it might get seen by less people, but it's better. It's, it might be better, and I bet you think it's better. So like. Pick your battle. And a lot of journalists are fickle and hard to work with, and they pro- that's probably why they don't like it. But uh, fucking Vox. I can't believe that shit. Yeah, I saw you on Twitter complaining about it, and it's it's the first thing I thought when I saw that was there's no way in hell that Sam Parr the Hustle would ever, ever ask for donations like, to support it because you are got to find a way to make money. you got to find a way to provide value. I don't even like the- Vox, but I don't care. Like, I bet they do a lot. I bet they, even though I don't like them, I, they surely have wonderfully talented people who work there. Like, what, why is this so hard to understand? You create something that people like, like, and then you say, all right, it costs this much money. Give me money. I don't understand why that's hard. And also, if you raise $150 million from Excel, you better be able to charge money for a product. Get out of here. So you haven't raised any money whatsoever from venture capitalists for the hustle. You, it's kind of your mission not to raise from venture capitalists. That's not my mission. Uh, I would do it. Technically, I raised $25,000 $25, from, from uh, one firm. Right. Was it a VC firm or was it like a, an angel or? It, well, no, I raised a few, a little bit of money from Angel, but uh, one of the guys who I met had a fund, and I like thought that it was just his money. He's like, "Oh no, it's through my fund." So technically, uh, oh yeah, you did tell me this. Yeah, you're almost, almost kind of sort of tricked, but technically you have raised. What's the calculus there? Why not just go out and raise a ton of money if you can, and use that to accelerate your growth and give away some percentage of your company? Because I'm greedy and want to own a lot of it. Yeah, I, simple as that. Yeah, it's just greed. I just think it's going to be really valuable and I want to figure out a way to do it. I think that I grew up kind of like poor and I, uh, it's really hard for me to spend money. Spending money is not something that's easy for me. Uh, I'm incredibly frugal, probably to a fault, definitely to a fault. I should be more way. I should be on the offensive way more. And so I'm like in my head, I'm like, well, what would I do with all that money? I'm like, I, I don't even like, I'm just like so cheap. Like I buy stuff used and uh, I did I've, every single computer that we have at our company, almost all of them I bought used on Craigslist. And so like, I just, I think I can get a lot done with very little money and also greed. And very few people as well. Yeah. How many people do we like 23, 24 people? Not that, not a lot. Not a lot. Well, listen, Sam, it's worked out for you beautifully so far, and it seems like it's going to keep working in the future. What would you like to say to, to indie hackers out there who are listening, who are inspired by your story, who want to make money on the internet, create things of value, who want to charge? What do you think is something they could learn from your story and take away as they sort of embark on this journey of their own? Launch something tomorrow. Do it fast and don't think about anything. Just do it. There's so many freaking smart people. Your audience is probably incredibly smart, way smarter than I am. And the thing that holds them back is fear of launching. So I always tell people, intellectually speaking, creating a business is super like easy and straightforward. Emotionally, it's really hard. So the best way to, to overcome that is just do it. You just got to do it. Just do it. <laughs> just Sam Parr, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn about what you're up to with The Hustle and with Trends and where they can learn more about you online? Did I give you a discount code last time? Should I give you another one? 
Uh, I don't think I got one last time, so another one would be great. First one. Okay, let's uh, let me write it down. We'll do uh, indie. You want to do indie? Um, Andy. Discount code for trends. Yeah. It, wait. Wait. What did I say? I said indie. Why did you correct me? Did I say it wrong? Andy. Yep. 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 No. 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 I'm just repeating it so everyone knows. I n d i e. Wait. Where? Uh, I gotta find the Slack channel. Uh, can we make code? I'm doing it. We're doing it live. Right now. Right now. So indie for fifty percent off for the first year. Okay, so Indy, they can find me at trends.co. They can find us at thehustle.co. And I'm very active on Twitter, the Sam Parr. And uh, don't email me because I have 355 unread emails right now and I, it'll be slow to get to. But if you tweet at me, I get back to you really fast. And I would love to hear from you. All right. You heard him. Don't email him. Send him a tweet. Sam, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, man. You're awesome. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Try to send a new email every time there's a new episode with my thoughts, my insights, and my takeaways. So you can find that at ndhackers.com slash podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.